we come to uh, now understand what is, what is being said here. There's a lot there. And uh, I'll try and do a justice to the text. But before we study it, uh, let's just take a moment and come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, there is so much to be said here, uh, so much uh, to be understood. Some of it uh, appears confusing. As we read the Bible, there are portions of Scripture we recognize that are not as easy to understand as other portions of Scripture. But Lord, we pray that your Spirit would give us understanding, that you'd make the Bible clear to us tonight, that we might uh, live by it and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, on an average morning, I'll wake up, go to work, and I'll make my coffee, and one of the first things I do in the office is I turn on the thermostat. And often I'll get up to go get my second cup of coffee, and I'll notice that the thermostat has been turned off. So I'll turn it back on. And, uh, and then sometimes as I'm getting my third cup of coffee, the thermostat is uh, turned off again. And now perhaps this is all in my head, but there seems to be this silent war over the thermostat in our office. I'm always too cold, uh, Gerald's always too hot, Rowena's somewhere in the middle, uh, we don't know where Duan is, he's late for work. <laughs> Sorry, Duan. There's a silent war, a silent battle for control in the office. And, you know, I remember as a kid uh, racing home from school to beat my brothers and sisters. I try and get to the TV first, I try to grab the remote first. Because he who has the remote has control over what we're watching. And so we battled against, uh, for the remote and for the TV. In the middle of the night, uh, sometimes I wake up cold. And my lovely wife has all the blankets and I have none. So what do I do? Well, a mature person would just go back to sleep. Um, but I fight back. I pull and tug on those blankets. And, uh, and so what I'm getting at here is that there, there are these battles, these fights that we have in life, these battles for control. People desire control, control over the thermostat, control over the remote, control over the blankets, control over money, control over the future, control over our kids. And people hate losing control. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves is backseat driving. When someone sitting in the passenger seat starts telling me how to drive. But the irony is, is that I'm probably the worst backseat driver that you'll ever meet. It's all about control, isn't it? And the fear of losing control. And we live in a world that sometimes it feels like it's, we're losing control. There's always uh, some kind of crisis that the world is facing whether it's terrorism or war or a natural disaster or the economy or flooding, as we've seen in the news uh, the past few days, often we are faced with these circumstances that are beyond our control. Now this chapter, the book of Daniel, specifically this chapter, was written to a group of people who had felt like they had lost control. They had lost, lost control of their city, Jerusalem. They had lost, they had been taken against their will um, to a foreign nation to live as exiles. And they were living in Babylon facing incredible persecution. 
And in writing this book, Daniel's goal is to remind the Israelites that even when the world feels like it's out of control, the God they serve is still in control. And chapter 11 teaches us this, teaches us a few things. First, it teaches us that God is in control of kings and kingdoms. He's in control of world history. He, he, he is in control of rulers and political powers. Now, just, for, just to remind you uh, what, we went, what we spoke about last sermon, back in chapter 10, God the Son appears to Daniel in a vision. And um, chapter 11 describes that vision. It's a vision of the future. What we've just read here is a description of events that would happen in Daniel's future. And that future is filled with war. And it's filled with kings fighting for control and alliances and deception and in this fight for control over land and money and power. And what's uh, mind-blowing about chapter 11 is how accurate it is. Yet this chapter was written 530 years before Christ was born, and the events described in this book were written two, three, four hundred years later. You know, imagine if King Henry VIII uh, predicted the invention of the smartphone, or if Queen Victoria predicted the war in Iraq. Daniel, with the help of of God, with this, this revelation that has been given to him by God, is predicting two, three, four, five hundred years of events that would take place. So he reveals the future. And what he discovers in this chapter is that the future is not pleasant. It's filled with war and trouble and tragedy and trial. And so what he sees here, if I can summarize everything that we just read, is he sees kings rising to power. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he sees four Persian kings rising to power. The first three, they were kind of you know, lesser, lesser kings. The fourth is the most powerful. His name is Xerxes. And his story can be found in the book of Esther. He was the king of the castle. He was the most powerful man on earth. And all the nations around him were the little dirty rascals. And he controlled um, great... Um, amounts of land. He controlled Egypt and Iran and Iraq and, and Turkey. But we see here in this chapter that the mighty always fall. Persia falls. And we see that in verse 3. They lose control. And in their place, the Greeks rise to power. And they gain control. And a different mighty king begins ruling. Look at verse 3. He will rule with great dominion, and he will do as he wills. Uh, his name would be Alexander the Great. Back in 2004, a really kind of poor movie was made about him. Uh, he would fight, Alexander the Great would fight for control over the Middle East. And he took control of what is now Egypt and Iran and Iraq and Turkey. But again, the mighty rise, but the mighty always fall and he would fall to his death at the age of 32. And in the wake of his death, four new empires would rise. Alexander's four generals 
his top four men, hungry for power, would squabble for control over the kingdom. Each general would take, take a little piece of the pie. And two of these generals became extremely powerful. And they also became mortal enemies. One of those generals, his name was Seleucus I, and he, he takes control of Turkey and Syria. The other general, named Ptolemy, he takes control of Egypt. And for hundreds of years, these two warring nations fought against each other. And the historians call these wars the Syrian Wars, and they would last for hundreds of years. The north would attack the south, the south would attack the north, and it would go on and on and on like that. And guess who's caught in the crossfire? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is called the glorious land in verse 16. So for hundreds of years, God's people would be caught between two warring, powerful warring nations. And they would be caught in the crossfire. And what we see in this, this chapter, and Tom doesn't permit me to unpack all, everything that there is in this chapter. But what we see in this chapter is we see this cycle of war and peace, war and peace. Kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, kingdoms advancing, empires advancing, empires crumbling. In verses 1 to 5, it's war. In verse 6, it, look at verse 6. Verse 6, it's peace. There's a, a royal wedding. The southern king marries his daughter to the northern king. And the thought was maybe if, if uh, we can uh, give, if the king can give his daughter into marriage and we can become family, then maybe we'll all get along and everyone's happy. And what happens is, uh, is the ex-wife of the Syrian king murders her ex-husband and his bride. And then she takes the throne and gives it to her son. And so there are all of these historical details here in the text. Details that Daniel prophesied. Details that actually came to pass hundreds of years later. Things start to get heated because now the princess has been assassinated and her family is angry. Her uh, Egyptian brother is furious. He marches into Syria and tears it apart. In, look at verses 7 to 9. I'll try and explain what's happening here. In verses 7 to 9, he ransacks the city. He loots the vessels of silver and gold and takes the gold back to Egypt. And so there's this bit of tit, and tat, tit for tat going on here. The Syrians are ticked off. In verse 10, they wage war against Egypt, which gets the Egyptians all riled up. So in verse 11, the Egyptians retaliate, and there's this cycle. War and peace, war and peace. Kings rising, kings falling, empires advancing, empires cr crumbling, the cycle going on and on. One big battle for control. And what these warring empires fail to realize is that the earth doesn't belong to them. This strip, strip of real estate, this uh, title deed to Egypt and Syria and Greece and Turkey does not belong to a king. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. And so the, the deed for planet earth, including the mountain ranges and its oceans and its creatures and its people, it all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's. This is God's world. It's not your world. 
And, and even though we might build property and, and establish governments and run businesses and create borders and legislate laws, we don't control the earth. And Daniel wants to drill this point into our heads. It was J.C. Ryle who once said that everything that we have is on loan to us from God. And let that sink in for a moment. You know, by default, we, we often think that everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to us. You know, that was the way the ancient kings thought of the world as they fought with each other. And here in chapter 11, there's this battle for territory. It's the way modern rulers think of the world. It's, it's why Putin attacks Ukraine. He believes it's rightfully his. We think of money in this way. It's my money. But it's not my money. It's God's money. Often we think of relationships in this way. This is my wife, my best friend, my kids. We think of property in this way. This is my beach house, my garden, my car. We think of work in this way. This is my job, my farm, my small business. And I think we need to start changing the way that we think about these things. Not long ago, I was reading uh, news about this Airbnb. Uh, I forget where it was, but a squatter uh, decided to rent out the Airbnb for a month. And when it was time to leave, the squatter threw up her hands and said, I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. And there was this big battle between the owner and the squatter as they fought for control and ownership over the house. But the house didn't uh, belong to the squatter. Um, the, and we need to start seeing ourselves as not as owners of the things that we have, but rather as caretakers, as God's stewards. Because this is God's world. These children of mine, um, who are lovely children, they gave me a bit of grief tonight, but they're lovely children. They are God's children. This house was given to me by God. This church that I preach in, that this is not the church of Jordan born. That, that would be a cult. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This pulpit is the pulpit of Jesus Christ, not my pulpit. And likewise, we belong to Christ. We are not in control. But we are under God's sovereign control. I think that's the theme of this chapter. And we are called to submit ourselves to God, to His authority. Now let's move on to a second point. Chapter 11 teaches us that God has control over sin and evil. Now we see, like I mentioned, we see this chapter is filled with uh, the true story of kingdoms fighting against each other. And these kingdoms are ruled by evil kings. And history is filled with evil kings, evil, tyrannical, oppressive rulers. We think um, back to Exodus, Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites, worked them to death, murdered them. Herod slaughtered innocent Jewish children. Nero would light his gardens with Christians. Henry VIII executed most of his wives simply because he didn't like them. Hitler, like we can think of all these names, Hitler, Pol Pot, um, Mao Zedong, Stalin. They've, they've committed atrocious genocide. And here in, Dan, in the book of Daniel, 
Daniel in his vision sees another king who is just as bad as Pharaoh and Nero and Stalin. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was born more than 300 years after Daniel wrote this prophecy. He rose to power in Syria. Verse 21 says that he was a contemptible person, which could be translated to say that he was a despicable person or a vile person. This guy is a piece of work. And if you look at verses 20, let me explain him to you. Verses 21 to 22, he's deceptive. He lies. He warps the truth. Verse 24, he's greedy. He's hungry for wealth. Um, He steals from other parts of, of his kingdom. Verse 25 to 30, he's power hungry. He has an overinflated eagle. Uh, he, he engages in war. Um, and, and we see this situation where um, he tries to invade Egypt. And after a failed attempt uh, to invade Egypt, he's forced to withdraw and return to Syria. So he invades Egypt, he fails, and as he's on his way back to Syria, his pride is hurt. And meanwhile, rumors had been circulating Jerusalem that he had died. And as he is on his way back to Syria, he stops in Jerusalem only to discover that the Jews were planning a revolt. Now look at verse 30. Embarrassed, enraged, wanting to maintain control of the city, Antiochus Epiphanes unleashes his rage and his fury on the Jewish people who were part of God's covenant people. And over the space of three days, he kills like something like 80,000 Jews. Look at verse 31. He profanes and blasphemes God. He, um, he waltzes, and history tells us that he, he would waltz into the holiest part of the temple, and he would set up this statue of Zeus, And in front of the statue of Zeus, he would take a pig, the dirtiest, filthiest animal, and he would sacrifice that pig in the holiest part of the temple just to enrage the Jewish people. And so that's why verse 31 calls this the abomination that causes desolation. And just so you understand how evil this is, Imagine, imagine someone doing something like this in one of our worship services. Imagine on a Sunday morning, as we are worshiping, the premier of Victoria comes into our church with a statue of Buddha and then forces us to worship Buddha. I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. He's taking a statue of, Jew, of, of Zeus, bringing it into the Jewish temple, and forcing the Jewish people to watch as he defiles the holiest part of the city. And so this guy, you know, he's, he's evil. And he has no shame. By sacrificing a pig in the temple, it's as if he is spitting in God's face. Now imagine this scenario. You know, your child, you say you have a 15-year-old child at home. He's angry with you. He hates living in your house. He hates living under your rules. One night he comes home 
It's past his curfew. You ask him where he was, and he starts to verbally assault you. Why don't you leave me alone? Why don't you back off? And it escalates to the point where he starts pushing you, and he spits in your face. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's like, that's the way that Antiochus Epiphanes is treating God. And, and how are we like that teenager? You know, in some ways, I think we have some similarities with Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, we don't sacrifice pigs in God's temple, but we do live in God's world, His holy world, His good world. And we drink God's water, and we are fed by God's hand, and God provides us with shelter and with clothing, and we sin against Him, and we ignore Him. And without a second thought, we break his reasonable laws. I often think of Richard Dawkins. He wrote 464 pages condemning God while living in God's world, while breathing God's air, and writing with hands that God had given him. We are just like the kid in humanity. We are just like that kid who spits in his father's face. We live in God's world, and we defile that world. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes entered God's temple and defiled God's temple. And so we have something in common with him. We have something in common with King Darius and with King Nebuchadnezzar. Because like these evil kings of the Old Testament, we have rebellious hearts. Hearts that are prone to wander. Hearts that will schedule sin into our calendars. Hearts that stay awake at night pondering ways to get revenge. Hearts that are quick to accuse and blame and defend ourselves. And apart from Christ, sin and selfishness control the human heart. Pride controls the human heart. Lust controls the human heart. Self-righteousness controls the human heart. And I think as we're reflecting on the evil actions of this king, it all began in the heart when his heart was inflamed with pride, when his heart was inflamed with, with lust for himself and for his own power and for his own glory. Why did Putin invade Ukraine? It's because pride controlled his heart. Why did Saul try to king, kill King David? Because hatred controlled his heart. Why did Samson give into temptation, into Delilah's temptation? Because lust controlled his heart? Why did the Pharisees condemn the adulteress? Because self-righteousness controlled their hearts. Before guns are ever loaded, every war begins in the human heart. It begins where selfish and sinful and evil desires take root. The problem is the heart. Every argument, every dispute, every broken relationship begins with a sinful desire that has controlled the heart. And so we see that, that the problem is not, you know, sometimes we, we look at the world, there are problems in the world, okay? But sometimes we, we over-evaluate the problems that are in the world and we under-emphasize the problem with our own hearts. This is why we don't preach moralism to people. Because moralism says that your behavior is your greatest problem. But the Bible says differently. The Bible says the heart is the problem. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. 
And it's why we don't preach lawlessness to people. Because lawlessness says that since God has saved you, you can just keep sinning however you want and it doesn't really matter. But we are called to put our faith in Christ. And what we are told in the scriptures is that Christ takes control of our hearts. He, he sees our heart in the, in the state that it's in, broken, sinful, weak, wandering, and he sends his spirit to enter your heart. And then he forgives your sin, and he assures you that you are indeed forgiven, and then he convicts you, and he changes your heart, and then he helps you in your fight against sin. And not only that, but as he helps us in our fight against sin, we begin fighting with him. So when you become a, a Christian, you change masters. Sin is no longer your king. Those sinful desires no longer control you. Christ controls you, and he works in you, and he progressively changes you over time. Now, sometimes that change can be slow, but without a doubt, Christ is working in our hearts progressively making us more like himself. And so, I guess the take-home from this passage here is that, that Christ is interested in our hearts. He's interested in controlling our hearts. And this leads me to a third and final point. God is also in control of our lives. And that's not a bad thing. A few months ago, we got on a plane and we ascended above the clouds, and I was glad to be a passenger. Everyone was glad that I was a passenger and not sitting in the cockpit. I wish I had been in business class. And this is really the comfort that the book of Daniel extends to believers. I think that if you look at the book from a bird's eye view, you see that, that God is telling his people that he's got it all under control, that he does have the whole world in his hands, that he is the pilot who brings us through turbulence and above the clouds and safely to our destination, that he is really, like as Psalm 23 says, he is the good shepherd who leads us by still waters through the valley of the shadow of death and on to safety. And he leads us through this life. What we see here is we see a promise that God will lead his people through these horrible, tragic events that would, all, that would take place throughout world history. Daniel is writing to a, a group of exiles, men, women, children who were experiencing turbulence in life, trouble. They had been attacked and robbed and forcibly taken from their homes. They had been forced to learn a new language and live in a new country and there are very few people in our church that can relate to that. They had experienced an incredible kind of trauma that most people in the West don't experience. And in the year 538, they get good news, and that good news is that finally they get to go home. But that good news also came with bad news, and the bad news is in this vision. As Daniel sees this vision, he sees turbulence. He sees kings and kingdoms, as I mentioned before, rulers uh, attacking one another, pillaging, robbing, and deceiving. And if it's not Babylon, 
it will be Persia, and if it's not Persia, it will be Greece, and if it's not Greece, it will be Syria, and if it's not Syria, it will be Rome. If it's not Rome, it will be another war, and another ruler, and another tyrant. It will be Kim Jong-il. It will be Hitler. It will be, uh, it will be the, the progressive uh, rulers of the West who, um, who legislate evil. This cycle of tribulation and trial will continue till the end of time. That's what we're told here. Now look at verses 33 and 35. And I think those two verses are really important because we are told a few things. First, we are told that many will be burned, captured, and plundered during these wars. 35, verse 35 says that some of the wise will stumble, but here's the good news. We are told that through these sufferings, these people will be what? Their lives will be refined, purified, and made spotless. It's, it's, as, if, if, as, it's as if God is cleansing them through this trial, purifying them, strengthening their faith, causing them to have a greater confidence in their God. Throughout the ages, God's people, without a doubt, will face trial. We're told that here. We might face it um, through temptation or persecution. We might uh, face it uh, through uh, death even. The Israelites faced it when they uh, were being enslaved in Egypt. The early Christians faced it when they were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. The reformers faced it when they were burnt at the stake. Christians in North Korea, they're not promised an easy life, are they? Yeah, they simply pray and gather each week, and every time they do it, they fear death. So what we're told here is that we will face trial in life. Now, it might not be a Colosseum or being burned at the stake, but this passage says that in some way, shape, or form, your faith will be tested. And it could be through tragedy. It could be through poverty. It could be through pandemic or disease or a broken relationship. It could be through death. But even still, who's in the cockpit? Who doesn't stop being God? Indeed, all things really do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This was true of the Israelites who were in exile, and it was true of you and me. And so, friends, we need to remember this truth. God is in control. As we face another week, we need to, in another set of trials, we need to remember that God is leading us through those things. And we desperately need this word of comfort from God because God does rule the world. And as He rules the world, He cares for you and me. Now, I hope to close uh, with uh, this first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism that. I wouldn't normally do this, but I want to do this for the, the benefit of my grandmother uh, who's listening and has been faithfully listening to this sermon series for the last uh, few weeks because she's facing a trial in hospital nearing the end of her life. And, um, and this passage reminds her 
that we are not in control, but we have a powerful God who is. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, says this. It says that our only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power and control of the devil. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing to live for him. Aren't those good words? Words to live by. So, as you recognize God's control over your life, may you surrender your hearts to him as he leads you through life in this world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but we belong with body and soul to Jesus. Oh Lord, we thank you for fully paying the price for our sins with your precious blood and setting us free from Satan's tyranny. Thank you, O Lord, for preserving us through this life, through le leading us through its turbulence. We know that, that without the will of our Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our heads, and all things do work together for our salvation. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, assure us this, this evening of eternal life and help us and make us heartily willing and ready to live for you. And so we pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.